This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Hey, movie addicts, welcome to Cinema Fix, your stop for the purest, highest quality movie reviews on the block. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined today by my fellow dealer, Monica Castillo. Hello, Andrew. Monica, it's time for a really long podcast. Oh, I miss really long <laughs> podcasts with you, Andrew. I think this is going to be fun. This is episode number 33 of Cinema Fix, and this is our wrap-up episode of 2012 focused on the best and worst movies of last year. Basically, if you're new to Cinema Fix, this is the show on Film Geek Radio focused on in-depth discussion of mainstream blockbuster films. We're here to satisfy your addiction to quality conversation about the movies. And this week we're going to do things a little bit differently. This is not a normal episode where we have both a spoiler-free and a spoiler-filled discussion about a specific movie. This is basically the Oscars of Cinema Fix. The Fixies, if you will. (laughs) Can't give them a cute name like that. We're going to (laughs) trash half the films we talk about. Yeah, this is the episode where we look back at the past year and talk about the best and worst movies of the year. Basically, the movies that left the biggest impression on us. And I'm really looking forward to it because, Monica... I think this is really going to give us a chance to talk about some movies that we haven't gotten a chance to talk about on the podcast. This is true, since I only came in halfway later in the year. Yes, well, not just that, but also because CinemaFix is focused on mainstream films, we usually don't talk about foreign films or documentaries or, or smaller films. The films you have other podcasts for. Right. For the purpose of, of, of this episode, though, it's anything goes. We're not just going to be talking about mainstream blockbusters. We're just going to be looking back on 2012 as a whole. And here's how it's going to work. First, Monica, you and I are going to count down our top ten movies of 2012, and we're going to discuss them as we go along. Okay. And then we're going to examine a few specific genres, like we're going to talk about the best action film and the best comedy film. We're also going to talk about the worst movie of the year, and we're going to we're going to mention movies that all that really surprised us and or disappointed us, and, and it, we've got a few more categories as well. So we've got a lot in store. So. Strap in, folks. Get ready. This episode's probably going to run a lot longer than usual. So let's go ahead and and get started. Uh, Monica, before we begin with our top ten, I want to ask you, what did you think of 2012 in film as a whole? And also, how many movies did you see? So the final tally of movies that I saw like theatrically released in a movie theater, hopefully, um, but would have gotten a release. So not just on the film festival circuit. I haven't even finished counting those. The final tally would be 124 theatrical releases. And overall, I thought 2012 was a really good year in movies. Uh, we, I was just browsing over real quick um, before the podcast, see if I missed anything. Um, every month by month, the number of movie releases. And there was at least one or two movies in the worst months, like February and January, that were actually 
pretty good that I enjoyed. Like even last year's January, um, we had the gray and haywire. So consider this is like the, considered the dry spot for movie releases, but still like there there were good things to be had. So overall, I think it was a win for the quality of movies that we have. And of course, if you go into documentaries and independent releases, I think it was a pretty pretty eventful year. I agree with you. I I, I actually really thought 2011 was a great year for movies mm-hmm. as well. I was in the minority in thinking 2011 was was a good year, but I actually thought a lot of good stuff came out yeah. it, it, last year. And then 2012 came around, and there were a few good movies at the beginning of the year, and then I kind of felt like for most of the rest of the year, there wasn't a lot of really good stuff. There wasn't anything that really just blew me away. Mm. And then I sat down to figure out what all I had seen and I realized, you know what? Even though there weren't a lot of movies that just blew me out of the water, there were a ton of movies that were just really good. Yeah. Really solid that I will definitely go back and watch again. So I now that I think about it, I think 2012 was a really ex- excellent year, including the films I saw at festivals and stuff like that. I've seen somewhere between 160 and 185 films. Yeah, but you're also counting festivals, whereas I haven't even tallied up. Yes, we've both seen a lot of stuff. Um, let's let's just dive into it. Let's talk about our top ten. Alrighty. So th- this isn't just the top ten percent of movies. Mm-hmm. This is a much lower percentage when you yeah. look at how many movies each of us saw. So this is. The creme de la creme. Okay, how about this? How about this? I give, or like either one of us, we give one and then you, the other gives the other, and then you one, and yes. so on and so forth. Why don't you mention your number 10, and we can talk about it for a little bit, and then and then I'll mention my number 10, and we'll go from there. It's going to be a long-ass podcast. My number 10 will be uh, Perks of Being a Wallflower. Great film. I'm going to go ahead and just throw in that that is on my list as well. Sweet. That is my number Five. Wow. Yeah, I really, really liked that movie. Yes, I did too. Um, but g- why don't you go ahead and tell me w- what it was that you liked about the film? I mean, I think it really did w- uh, what it set out to do in capturing the emotional vulnerability of that age. It also touched upon a trauma. Um, I think it was very beautifully depicted. Everybody shows up and he gives a great performance. Um, I believed in every single one of the characters. Never did I think I was watching a movie. Um, I got embroiled in all the drama that was going on. And of course, you know, it, it all ends up with a lot of tears and hopefully a little bittersweet happiness, but such is life. <laughs> yeah, I, I've never read the book that this is based on. I hadn't on. either. Going in, I had no idea what I was going to expect. And then, you know, I come out looking like a hot mess. I, I, I mean, the book was written by Stephen uh, Chbosky. And when I found out that he... Was, had written the screenplay and directed, directed the yeah. film, and he had never directed a movie before, I went in and I was thinking, oh no, this is not going to be good. This guy is not a filmmaker. He he writes novels. Mm-hmm. But it really, really blew me away. It was a really, really solid film. Emma Watson is incredible. Yes. Not only is she very, very attractive in the movie, but she also does a fine acting job as well. <laughs> Oh, sure. Andrew, that's mature. (laughs) 
<laughs> I was actually kind of hoping that she would get a uh, Best Supporting Actress nomination. She did get People's Choice Award, I think. Yes, she has gotten some some accolades. They're all fully deserved. Yeah, I definitely had her in one of my best supporting um, roles of the year. There's just so much to like about this movie. It's just it it does a really good job of capturing high school, figuring out sexuality, figuring out where you are in the world, like and the hierarchy of life. Like there's, I think it really caught that well. It didn't make it you know like an after school special. Right. It it does touch on so many things that teenagers go through, and it doesn't feel like it's talking down to you. Yeah. It feels like it's taking that period in, in, in your life seriously. And yeah, overall, I just thought it was really well done. Real, well written, well shot, mm-hmm. great soundtrack. Yes. Really awesome music. Well, you can't go wrong when you have Bowie. Right. So yeah, I, I'm totally on board with your number 10 pick. Okay, what's your number 10 pick? My number 10 pick, it's a movie I saw at South by Southwest. You would. And it did not get a major theatrical release. I think it did finally come out on video on demand and a few other platforms. Okay. Um, and I can't remember if you saw it or not. And that's the movie King Kelly. I did not, um, but I, I tell us about that. I didn't get to catch it at South by. King Kelly um, is directed by Andrew Neal, and it is about this young woman. I can't remember if she's in high school or, or just about to go into college, but kind of this lower class young woman who makes money by stripping online. And performing sex acts on her webcam and stuff. So the opening scene of the movie is Luisa Krause, um, and it's one of her webcam broadcasts as she's talking with these people who are paying for her and and encouraging her to do these really vulgar sex acts. And it's kind of shocking. And then from there, it just it just sort of keeps going, and it's it's all done handheld it's all meant to be like a like a documentary where people are filming things on their iPhones and stuff like that and it just does it's really kind of chilling how it captures how isolated people have become in many ways because of the internet and how people will at times be so desperate just to connect with somebody they'll do these really crazy outrageous things online just because they want they they want someone to love them um they want someone to be their friend it's kind of depressing but also really darkly funny how this character kelly just has this really out of control night where involving um a corrupt cop and involving drugs and sex and thing one thing just leads to another it's basically the way more interesting version of project x in a lot of ways it's one of those movies like when it ended i was like i don't even know if i liked that but man that was different and that was cool and that was unique um and it stuck with me for through the rest of the year so 
I would say if you get a chance, definitely check out King Kelly. Sounds good. It's really funny to hear all about all these movies that are like emphasizing the isolation that we get from social media and always being on the computer because actually one of my favorite documentaries this year is the uh, the story of Ai Weiwei and how he's connected through his audience on Twitter and has led mass protest in China and how people have demanded justice for him when he was in prison all through the use of social media and and just even, I, I've even found a few movie friends to come with me to my local theater and come to the midnight movies with me. And we have a little group going now. This is all, of course, you know, connecting with people. And, you know, obviously we do this podcast uh, long distance. So, <laughs> yeah, that's that's a really good point. Um, what's your number nine? My number nine. Now, don't laugh. It's the Avengers. I'm a big Joss Whedon fan. I had lots of fun. It's an act. It's just a dumb popcorn movie, but it's it's not that dumb. It's actually done pretty well. Um, there's witty dialogue. I think Whedon really plays up the characteristics, um, creates a little animosity in between everybody, makes um, Samuel L. Jackson's Nick Fury almost like a double agent, and we kind of questioning his motives behind some of the uh, decisions that he makes. So, you know, for all intents and purposes, for it being just a regular superhero movie, it goes a little deeper than your average flick. I agree. That was a, a really fun movie. It didn't make my top ten. It didn't make a lot of people's top ten, but I I like to see a little bit of diversity in the top ten. So that's why I was like, well, this is definitely one of the most most enjoyable superhero movies I have seen in the past couple of years. And this includes Iron Man and, from 2008 and uh, Captain America from last year. That movie is a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And I, I am of the opinion that there were only two movies that were good that came out this summer. And that was one of them. Oh, okay. Yeah. So. <laughs> Dang, your summer was hard. <laughs> I'm so glad I have the art house theaters that I have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was not a great summer for mainstream blockbuster movies. Yeah, I know. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. The Avengers was a lot of fun, and it'll be interesting to see if Marvel can keep it up and keep producing quality superhero movies on individual heroes that they then bring together, together yeah. in these big tentpole releases. Well, I think you know a lot of people. A lot of people who hadn't seen Whedon's previous work on television were really skeptical about what he was going to do with it. And I was kind of like, I'm just excited that he's doing something this big because we know that he can take such large universes. Like, look at Firefly. That was one season, and there's so much backstory and character development packed into that concise, I think it's only 13-episode uh, long season, but everything, it's a lot of depth, and it's a lot of character, and it's a lot of story that you can follow along, and every episode is different. So I think he can definitely pull it off. I'm glad that it was a good movie, and I'm glad it made a ton of money. Yes. So now Joss Whedon will finally be able to get regular work and <laughs> pretty much do whatever he wants. Yes. That makes me happy that he no longer has to struggle. Yeah. All right. Well, my number nine is it, – it was totally unexpected. It's a movie I only saw like a week ago. Oh. And kind of came out of nowhere – and blew me away. I wasn't expecting to like this movie much, and it ended up making my top ten, and that is Tim Burton's Frankenweenie. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's cute. 
<laughs> That's cute. Did you see Frank and Weenie? Did you I like did. Frank and Weenie? I liked Frank and Weenie. I, I saw he he did the short originally um, back as one of his student films or so. So it was included in the box set of uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. So I was really excited when I saw it in theaters and so. But then you know I saw it and I guess I was kind of like Ugh. like not too long before that. Um, see, I saw Paranorman, which was at maybe the beginning of the month or so, and then mm-hmm. Frank and Weenie was at the end. So I really fell in love with Paranorman, and I don't think a lot of people have had the chance to check them out, but it's from the same company, more or less, that did uh, Coraline. And so they have a very interesting style, and they went a totally different direction, where Tim Burton's very rooted in the 1930s Universal Picture Studio. Paranorman takes off on the 1970s sort of campy horror stuff that we might be more familiar with now as uh, younger film viewers. That was a lot of fun, too. So, I don't know. I didn't. Maybe I wasn't so blown away by Frank and Weenie after getting my kicks off of uh, Paranorman. Well, well, here's the thing. I saw Paranorman. I really liked Paranorman. I thought, there's no way Frank and Weenie's going to be better than Paranorman. Okay. And then as I was watching Frank and Weenie, I realized, oh my god, Tim Burton has made Holy Motors for a mainstream audience. No. Okay. He is, Wait. Yes. No. Explain. Let me, let me explain. There is so much going on in Frank and Weenie. I was, ki- I was kind of just like in awe. I think it's one of Tim Burton's densest films ever in terms of what he is doing. Did you get to see Dark Shadows? I did not. Ah, oh, damn. Like, I really liked it. So I almost, it was really funny to see a Tim Burton sex comedy. <laughs> okay, well, well, here's the thing about Frank and Winnie. Frank and Winnie, for people that don't know, is stop-motion animated film about a boy named Victor, Victor Frankenstein. It's basically a kid's take on the Frankenstein story. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this boy, his dog gets hit by a car, so he brings his dog back to life, mm-hmm. like Frankenstein. And... The whole movie, I was thinking, this is Tim Burton talking about his career. This is Tim Burton talking about (laughs) remake culture and how Hollywood is obsessed with bringing things back. And and, and Tim Burton himself has been in charge of so many remakes. I'm positive that had to have been on his mind. And and just so many things, like the fact that Victor brings – his dog back to life just because he he has pure intentions. He wants a good friend. He loves the original dog. And then his friends start bringing their pets back to life because <laughs> they just want they just want the trophy. They yeah. just want the the awards, the acclaim. Yeah. And I was thinking that's Hollywood in a nutshell. Wow, that's <laughs> actually deeper than I thought you were going to go. <laughs> I'm impressed, Andrew. I, I, I was sitting there and I was thinking, this is Tim Burton's apology and explanation <laughs> for Alice in Wonderland and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Wow. <laughs> this is him saying, I'm, tr- I'm trying to keep my intentions pure when I remake these movies, but sometimes you get carried away with all the money and, and stuff like that and and you know what's sad is that both frank and weenie and dark shadows did poorly at the box office yes yes wah, wah. but but just so much so much of, the, of frank and weenie stuck with me like the, the repeated line in that movie is about how you know when, when something's gone mm-hmm. it's still there in your heart yeah you know maybe you don't need to bring it back it's still you're always gonna have that you're mm-hmm. always gonna have the original yeah there 
So it's okay to remake things in a sense because mm-hmm. you you will always have the original. And yeah, it just it just got my brain going. I was thinking as far as movies about cinema go, who would have thought that Frankenweenie would engage me more than Holy Motors and Seven Psychopaths? Couldn't yeah, I don't know if it goes beyond Holy Motors because Holy Motors is a lot to say about movies, but I, I see where you're going. I'm Frank and Weenie. Holy Motors might be on your list, so there's a chance that we'll be talking about Holy Motors in a little bit, but yeah. I, don't, I don't know. We'll see, because uh, I, I have some thoughts about Holy Motors as well. Okay. What is your number eight? My number eight is 21 Jump Street. All right. Yeah. I did not expect that. Really? <laughs> Did you not read, like, any of my reward posts? I hate you. (laughs) (laughs) You jerk. I worked so hard on my Bafka Awards. All my ballot is up there. This has been up there for months. (laughs) I I remember seeing your ballot, but I I must have confused it with all the other ballots I've seen coming out lately. I had forgotten that 21 Jump Street made your top ten. Yes. Why did 21 Jump Street make your top ten? Because it was baller. I had so much fun. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like 21 Jump Street to you is like Frank and Weenie for me. <laughs> okay, I guess. Like, you, you, you saw Frank and Weenie, and you're like, oh, that was fun. And I saw Frank and Weenie, and I was like, oh, man, that was awesome. And I saw 21 Jump Street, and I was like, that was good. And you saw it, and you were just totally blown away. Dying. Yeah, no, I, I got to see it at uh, South by Southwest, and I also got um, to interview some of the people, and it was just really i got to interview the directors and that was a lot of fun because they actually do sometimes make jokes like one to the other one to the other one to the other and and it kind of like wow so this is how this goes but yeah no i think it tapped into a lot of fun subculture it's basically it's it's bringing okay so back to revamping everything and it makes fun of that right um in inside of its own movie uh they bring back the 21 Jump Street division to infiltrate um, high school crime. And the case that failed cops Channing Tatum and Jonah Hill are put on is to break this drug ring of a drug called Holy (laughs) 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 And it just, of course, they're completely inept and it's just, it's too funny. They get their, each other's identities mixed, they're, you know, they fill out everything, and they also talk about, like, how high school has changed and how the, the opening of the movie is Jonah Hill dressed up as, like, an Eminem wannabe and how he's a loser in high school, and Channing Tatum is the jock and the popular kid who's failing high school. So nowadays, everyone's trying to get into college. Channing Tatum ends up with the nerds, and Jonah Hill's a popular kid because, you know, he studies or he's into theater and... uh environmentalism and things like that so i had tons of fun i was laughing so hard and it's a great supporting cast and there's a good there's two also cameos from the original cast they have clips of the actual show playing in one scene in the background i just loved it i shared it to my mom (laughs) over christmas break (laughs) yeah 21 jump street does so much stuff right it is a reboot of an old TV show that acknowledges, yeah, we're kind of just taking stuff from the 80s and turning it all into movies now. Yeah. And it has fun with that, and it acknowledges that, and it, it is 
a loving tribute to the original show mm-hmm. while also being something fresh and new. Yes. And I, I like how you pointed out that, it, yeah, it has some really interesting things to say about how culture has changed mm-hmm. and how now the ge- the geeks are the cool people. Yeah. Yeah, really, really great film. Oh, yeah. I'm looking for, they're already, like, I think after the first weekend, they already, Jonah Hill announced on Twitter or something that he was working on a new script for the next one, so. Oh, man, I would totally go see. Like, in a heartbeat, right? 22 Joke Jump Street. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> 21 and a half Jump Street. It's good. It's just good. Check it out. There's car chases and explosions, and that's the second movie I think on my list with <laughs> I promise I get, I promise I get a little more film snobby. As it goes on. Okay, okay. Well, my number eight is a film that I actually saw in Toronto in 2011, but it got a wider release in 2012. Mm-hmm. I kind of played South by Southwest, and I've seen it probably two or three times since I first saw it. Yeah. It's so much fun. And that is The Raid Redemption. Yes. Okay, agreed. That's good. Yes. This movie, if you do not know what The Raid Redemption is, it is the most kick-ass martial arts film of the past five years, probably. It is, it, it's an Indonesian movie, and this, the story is just so basic. It's just what, what very little you need to know. Yes. <laughs> it is actually the most minimal amount in a plot. <laughs> yes. And Gareth Evans, I saw his his previous film, Marantau, which mm-hmm. actually has the same martial arts star yeah. as The Raid Redemption, and was not very impressed okay. by that film. So I didn't have high expectations going into The Raid Redemption, and I was watching The Raid Redemption, and I was just like, is this the same director? <laughs> like, I don't know if I've ever seen a filmmaker improve so dramatically from one film to the next. Just the action is so well choreographed, so well directed. The editing is so precise. The the action just starts and it does not let up. And there are guns and there are knives and there are people beating the crap out of each other. And it's violent. Quality family entertainment. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Take the kids. Yeah. But but yeah, this movie is just so much fun. Definitely the best fight choreography I've seen in a long time. It, it's a movie I've already seen three or four times, and I will definitely watch it many more times, especially because they've already announced they're going to do a sequel. <laughs> so, basic plot. Guy has to fight his way through a building. Yep. And it's incredible. And it's amazing. Anything you need to add about The Raid Redemption? No, you pretty much captured it. Did it make your top ten? It did not make my top ten. It probably is one of the best action films, though. I'll give it that. Well, I I will say, by the time this episode is released, the North Carolina Film Critics Association will have released their awards. Yeah. And The Raid Redemption was one vote away Mm. from being (laughs) best foreign language film. (laughs) Man. Well, they feed you over there in North Carolina. Holy Motors beat it by one vote. And the reason it did so well is because North Carolina film critics are a smart crowd. Okay? (laughs) We know good entertainment when we see it. (laughs) Hmm. Okay. Alrighty. Alright, what is your number seven? My number seven is The Master. No. 
It's uh, um, I'm so I'm sorry. Go go on. Disrespectful. <laughs> no. So this is his quasi take on the Scientology tale. Whether he denies it or not, it's totally what it's about. But you're talking about that, that Paul Thomas Anderson. Yes, the so, master. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so we follow Joaquin Phoenix, who is a troubled man after the war, trying to find something to do, a place to live, find meaning in life, and he ends up becoming incidental friends with Philip Seymour Hoffman's charismatic writer, and he sort of falls into this like cult. Um, and we are introduced to his circle, and it's a completely different life that we've uh, that he's never seen before. So obviously they welcome him with open arms, although with a little trepidation because he's you know such a weirdo. But eventually he's sucked into being uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's right hand man, and so it's this very quiet and slow. Yes, I'll give it to you. That's why you were snoring. Um, it's a very slow paced movie about friendship. And so how it comes to being, it comes to its peak, and then it comes to fall apart. So it's a very methodical way of looking at it. Okay. Here, here's go. what I'm going to say about go, because you okay. have been making faces <laughs> at me. <laughs> okay. Here's the thing. I, I love Paul Thomas Anderson, and I will acknowledge up front, I've only seen The Master one time, and it's a movie I feel like I need to see... Again, and I also saw it in seventy millimeter. So okay, I did not see it in seventy millimeter. Unfortunately, it was gorgeous. Here's what I will say: from a craft perspective, it's very well done, very well shot, incredibly well acted. Joaquin yeah. Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman need those Oscars. Just hand it to them right now. Shout out to my girl Amy Adams. Amy Adams is great. The thing about the Masters, I feel like as his career has progressed, Paul Thomas Anderson is gradually turning into Terrence Malick. And I'm not a Terrence Malick fan, so I don't really like that. You're saying it like it's a bad thing, and I'm kind of in love with Terrence Malick, so shut your face. <laughs> here's, the, here's the thing about, I, I feel about The Master the same way I, I feel about Terrence Malick movies, which is that it's very well put together, beautifully shot, but in many ways I feel like it's not really about anything. Or rather, it's trying to be about so many things that it's actually about nothing. I thought that it had a very direct focus. I didn't. I thought There Will Be Blood, which I know a lot of, a lot of people didn't like, I thought There Will Be Blood was way more focused and way more engaging than The Master. Well, yes, because it has Daniel Day-Lewis yelling at everybody. True, that could... That maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe The Master needed more yelling. And oil that will potentially combust at any moment. The Master, I watched it, and I came away just kind of like, eh. I, it, was, it was an interesting film. It really didn't grab me emotionally in any way. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Maybe on repeated viewings, it'll, it'll get better. But I kind of came away and was like, I don't know what to make of that. And in this case, I'm not sure if that's a good thing. Like, th- there's certain films where you're like, man, there's so much to process. Mm-hmm. That director totally knew what he was, do- w- was doing, and he's, he's so much smarter than me. I have to process that. Yeah. And the master, I came away feeling like, I don't know what to think of this, and I'm not sure there is anything to figure out. Oh, I thought you were just going to say, I don't care. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I, I care. I care. Okay. It's, like okay. I said, who knows? Maybe on a, on a second viewing, I'll like it a lot more, and I'll, I'll suddenly understand what all the fuss is about. So what's your choice, then, to match mine? 
My number seven is a British film. I don't think it's been released in the U.S. yet, but I'm hoping it'll be released in 2013. I saw it at the Toronto International Film Festival, and that is the new film from Mike Newell, his version of Great Expectations. Oh, good. Something I can't talk about. I haven't seen it. (laughs) It hasn't been released. (laughs) And PBS hasn't put it out, so... (laughs) Great Expectations, the classic Charles Dickens novel about class and grace and forgiveness all because you haven't seen it there's not a whole lot to talk about all i'll say is that i I really like the movie performances are great i was fully invested in this movie unlike the master which left me feeling really cold i was fully on board with the characters in this movie it got me a little teary-eyed just really really well done film go see great expectations when it comes out in 2013 i loved it Okay, quick aside, uh, did you get to catch Wuthering Heights? I did not. I okay. actually have it. It's waiting to be watched. Oh, wow. Okay, so I guess that'll be another discussion for another time. Perhaps. Maybe. Perhaps. Is that on your list? Uh, no, it's not on my list, but in terms of like adaptations that were okay. really well put together, um, my only complaint was it kind of falls apart towards the end, but other than that... okay. I love Andrea Arnold, so I'll watch anything that she does. All right. Well, what's your number six? It's going to be Oslo, August 31st. I told you I get more snobby <laughs> as we go on. <laughs> you and your Norwegian movies. Norwegian movies, yes, and Europeanness. <laughs> yes, so this was actually a film that here in Boston we had a really big to do about because it was booked and scheduled to play at a theater. And then, and then a corporate theater. So this is like a corporate art house uh, theater. But then they decided to drop the booking altogether. Well, because they had dibs on it, none of the other theaters in the area could get it. So essentially, um, a couple critics banded together and started writing articles about about it because uh, they had four star reviews and five star reviews going up about this movie that's now not going to be released in the Boston area. So they were able to get people in contact with other independent theaters and it was able to get played at our local museum of fine arts and another um independent theater in the area and it played for over a couple weeks that they didn't even expect it it had a one week booking and it held it held on for like think two more weeks after that um because it was so popular so it was a little nice local success story of uh you know critics do good uh, occasionally <laughs> Yeah, this this is the it's the new movie from director Joaquin Trier, who I believe also did Reprise, yeah. which I haven't seen, but I've I've heard is absolutely incredible. Same, I haven't seen, but this movie is about a guy that just gets a one day leave from rehab, and he is out to like try and find a job, just try and uh, reestablish his life and pick up where he left off. But he comes to find that as time has gone on, his friends have moved on, they have family, they have kids, and he's kind of sitting there, like, not only just feeling left behind, but feeling out of the loop, and just as a stranger to, you know, people he once knew as friends and family. So it's a very, yes, it's a very existential movie or so. It's very Norwegian, (laughs) but... I still, I thought it was beautiful, beautifully done. You still feel it's a very cold and he's very lost. You get that in the cinematography alone. The long shots of him, like just standing there by himself and the rage that he feels inside. 
of not being able to move forward. So I thought it was very well captured for, I think it's, it's only like 100 minutes or even less. And it's available now on streaming on Netflix. So if you want to catch that, you definitely should. Yeah, it, it is a beautiful film. It didn't make my top 10, but it is very well done. It does a, it does a really good job of showing how drug addiction doesn't just you're not just ruining yourself Mm -hmm. it affects how you interact with others and when you get over that when you go through rehab it shows how hard it can be to to just kind of readjust to regular life well even not just rehab the way that i connected with the film is that even just people from high school their lives are totally right. different from where I'm at right now in mine. And some of them have kids now. And that's one of the things that he's going through is that he's coming back. People have kids and family. And some of them regret it. Some of them are like, well, I keep losing friends all over the place because they're having kids. And it's it's bizarre. But it's so true. It's that weird middle to late 20s to early 30s where all that settling down is happening. So at least that's how it, it hit for me personally. I was like, whoa there. Yeah, it, that is a, that's a really, really solid film. My number six is a little sci-fi movie called Looper. Alrighty, fair. Did it make your list? Not my top ten. But I, I might include it in the, in the action category, because that was... A, I had a lot of fun with Looper. Looper was a lot of fun. Um, if you haven't seen Looper, it's the new movie from director Ryan Johnson about time travel and a hitman who is hired to kill the future version of himself. Mm-hmm. And that's the basic premise, and it gets pretty crazy from there. And what I liked about Looper is that it actually is using that really cool premise to explore some really good ideas about human nature, whether or not people can change violence and how violence tends to be a cycle and it tends to be a loop mm-hmm. in many ways. And it does a really good job of balancing the more intellectual science fiction time travel stuff yeah. with some just really cool action set pieces. Mm-hmm. It finds a really good middle ground. It's not too big and dumb to turn away people that are looking for a really smart time travel movie Mm -hmm. but it's also not so intellectual that it's hard to follow or mainstream audiences won't be able to to relate to it yeah the movie's um pretty much explained within the first 15 minutes of the movie there's uh joseph gordon levitt's voiceover that lets you in on what the whole premise of what a looper does and what his job is and it's a nice little into the movie yeah really love the film I, I love what it what it's trying to say about violence. I think it's a pretty radical film in terms of the philosophy it takes towards violence. Well, yeah, for us sociological folks, cyclical violence is something that we <laughs> we, we recognize. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a real thing. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but I I just thought it was really brave how it kind of confronted that idea of violence and retribution mm-hmm. and 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 its solution for how to solve that yeah is is kind of blew my mind and was like man that's a ballsy move right yeah. there yeah and I, I won't spoil what it is but uh but yeah definitely see looper if you have not seen looper all right what is your number five 
We're halfway done. I know. Let's, let's do this. <laughs> One hour later. Um, my number five is Moonrise Kingdom. Okay. What? That movie, it's not on my list. Okay. But I I enjoyed it. Well, I love Wes Anderson's direction. It's so it's so Wes Anderson. I, I just love the aesthetic that he puts into it. It's And the subtle little acting from everyone. And it was fun to just have him take the budding love story of two elementary school age kids or middle schoolers yeah they're middle schoolers they're like 13 and 12 or something and they go run off to the woods because they love each other and they can't be together any other way and they try to you know get married and try to be an adult too fast but then on the real side you have all the adults that are telling them what to do and they're just miserable No, you don't want to run into where they are. (laughs) You want to stay kids and you want to have that idealism. So I think it works on so many different levels in terms of just maturity and what it means to be a grown-up. So I really liked it. I agree with you. Um, There's a part of me that was a little bit alienated by Wes Anderson's style. It's, It's kind of like Wes Anderson to the extreme. Oh, he's just getting more Wes Anderson-y by the movie. Yes, and there was a part of me that was distracted by that, but then there was another part of me that was really, really drawn in. Okay. And there, 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 there's so many good things about the film. Uh, everything with those two kids and their budding romance. So good. I was fully invested in that relationship. Yeah. The scenes with them on the beach were, were incredible. Mm-hmm. And there's some surprisingly frank and and dark themes kind of going on about parenting Mm -hmm. about relationships there's a scene in which Frances mcdormand is lying in bed with her husband uh, bill murray talking about what are we going to do about our kids you know our marriage is falling apart what are we going to do and she says something like well we have to stay together for the kids uh we're we're all they have have, yeah yeah we're, we're all they have and bill murray says something like that's not good enough yep (laughs) <laughs> kind of like we're so screwed up that even there's no way these kids are going to turn out okay. Yeah, and it was just really kind of dark and and, and chilling mm-hmm. to me. And the film just navigates that so effortlessly, going from super light and breezy mm-hmm. to really kind of disturbing um, in in certain ways. And it just it does it so effortlessly. Um, so yeah, that, that was a very good film. Alrighty, what's your number five? My number five was Purpose of Being a Wallflower, which we've already talked about. So go ahead, give me your number four. Beast of the Southern Wild. All right, Beast of the Southern Wild is on my list. It is my number two. Oh, yay. Yeah, so it was kind of weird because towards the end, we started getting all these screeners for your awards consideration, for awards consideration, and I... Beast of the Southern Wild was probably my number one going into the month of December. And then all the other things that I'm going to announce, we got to watch. And I was like, darn it, I really like this, but I really love these other ones too. But yes, so the harrowing tale of the six-year-old lead uh, named Hush Puppy and her will to survive the elements, the uh, abuse, the just everything that she she faces i it was so touching and it just made me like want to high five her at the end because she just walked you know mm-hmm. she's just 
I don't even know how they were able to get her to do that because I, I have met the young actress um, Clavonze Wallace, and she's she's like you know she's like a regular old kid you know kind of talking about sleepovers and stuff like that. And then in the other one, it was just like, she's just screaming and she fights with people and she's got to deal with her, you know, her dad and her have the most antagonistic relationship I think I've seen a father and daughter on film. <laughs> well, she was five years old when they shot the movie. Six. And when, when they first started. Six. Oh, six? six. Okay. Well, I think when they first cast her, she was five. Yeah, but the actual movie shot. Yeah, she lied about her age, I believe, when they when. They they asked how old she was, yeah. so that she could be considered, and and she she does such a good job. Mm-hmm. For the people that haven't seen Beasts of the Southern Wild, it's basically about a community of people living in southern Louisiana, mm-hmm. and what happens to them after this massive storm comes and wipes out their community. Yeah, but it, it's so much more than that. Yeah. Okay, I find it kind of funny that you're not a fan of Terrence Malick, but here is a surrealistic sort of, um, they have the actual beast, um, which is kind of like some sort of a wild boar that's always haunting Hush Puppy in her mind. It's kind of like a, a stand-in for fear, the f- fear oncoming storm, the fear of the world falling apart, and they're just getting closer and closer. Well, th- well that's what I like about Beasts of the Southern Wild, and I, I like movies that have these more surreal aspects, but you can tell they're clearly symbolic and they're they're clearly metaphorical, and you can tell, and you, you can clearly argue about different things that they're supposed to represent, mm-hmm. whereas with a lot of Terrence Malick movies, I just kind of feel like, dude, you're getting so out there and abstract that I have nothing to latch on to, okay. and there's nothing that this is grounded in. Mm-hmm. But that's a discussion for, for another, another time. time. Gotcha. I liked Beasts of the Southern Wild the first time I saw it, and I saw it again a week or two ago, mm-hmm. and it just shot up on my list. Yeah. Because it, it, it is such a good movie. I, I honestly think Beasts of the Southern Wild could be the best movie ever made about climate change. Boy, Al Gore's gonna be pissed. He he is, but I think he'll get over it. I, I honestly think if there's ever some huge environmental catastrophe and disaster and the you know, seventy percent of the world is flooded or something, mm-hmm. I think we're gonna look back and we're gonna say Beast of the Southern Wild, this is what that movie was all about. Yeah. It makes you think of Katrina when you watch it. But they never say that it's a specific hurricane that strikes this community. All you know is that it's a storm. Some ecological thing has happened to cause this. And there's so much in there about not only how are we going to survive this, but how should we prepare the younger generation to deal with this? Mm -hmm. Are we in any way at fault for this? Are we responsible? And if so, how can we either prevent it or at the very least help out the new generation so that they will be able to deal with this? Mm. What do they need to know? There's just so much great stuff going on in this movie. So many different ways you can read it. It's about global warming. It's about how to respond to natural disasters. It's about parenting. It's about the relationship between a father and his daughter. Mm-hmm. And whereas you, you say you found that relationship very antagonistic. I, while I do think it is a little bit antagonistic, especially in the beginning, mm-hmm. you realize as the movie goes on that everything these people do 
and everything that these two people, the, the way they behave towards each other, it's all driven out of love for this other person. No, like there's still a loyalty because when he puts, one time he tries to put her on a bus to safety, she runs back to him. Right, but in it, but even in the beginning, there's a moment when like he hits her and stuff, and you're like, oh no, is this an abusive yeah, yeah. father? And you realize as the movie goes on that even though he's really tough and he's really harsh, mm-hmm. he just wants to help her survive, and he wants to help her become who she needs to be to be to to survive. I, I got that from the beast scene when they put out all the crawfish out on the table and they have her like break right. apart a crab and they're all cheering her on and he's yelling at her, no, you have to do it, you have to do it, you have to do it. And she finally does it and there's all this, you know, celebration for her becoming a beast. She beasted it. <laughs> Every scene in this movie is is just so well done. And the score, I am so upset that the score did not get nominated for for an Oscar. The, the music to this movie is absolutely incredible. Yeah, so we're in love with this movie. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, we both love this movie. It, it was, it was I, I knew it was going to be on my top ten, and I was like, oh, maybe it'll be like my number eight or something. And then I saw it a second time, and it shot up to number two. So I'm thinking I might actually want to move this one up. I wish, but, you know, I've published this list uh now a month ago so I, it is what it yeah. is but uh go ahead with your number four my number four is a movie i saw at the end of 2011 at, at in toronto it came out um it actually made my list of the best movies of 2011 but because it came out in 2012 in wide release i'm gonna go ahead and include it on this list i see how you cheating for the purposes of this podcast and that is killer joe Oh, well, yeah. No, I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> did you see Killer Joe? I saw it at South by Southwest. Okay, what did you think of Killer Joe? It is certainly not the feel-good movie <laughs> of the year. So you hated it? I did not hate it. So it's hard to kind of explain. But um, I liked it in that it was a very well-told story. It is very unnerving because there is abuse in it. Mm-hmm. And it was very uncomfortable to watch, but it doesn't make it any less of a movie. The kind of violence that is inflicted goes to sh- like goes to explain a deeper meaning. But I'm going to have you explain it since this is your movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Killer Joe is the new movie directed by William Friedkin. It's uh, based on the play by Tracy Letts. And whenever Friedkin and Tracy Letts get together... You know the ex- the results are going to be crazy and weird and disturbing. Go watch Bug if you haven't seen Bug. And Killer Joe is about a guy played by Emil Hirsch who wants to have his mother killed mm-hmm. so he can get the insurance money. So he hires a guy named Killer Joe played by Matthew McConaughey who is this badass hitman. Yep. Basically, Killer Joe's like, cool, I'll kill your mom, just pay me 50000 bucks." And Emil Hirsch is like, I don't have $50,000, but I will once I get the insurance. Mm-hmm. So go ahead and kill her. And Killer Joe's response is, okay, I'll do that, but I, will, I, I need your sister, your 13-year-old sister, as a retainer. And it just goes from there, and this movie is violent and it is disturbing and Mm -hmm. it is in my opinion 
the most radically feminist film of the past year by far. This whole movie is about southern white men either trying to manipulate women or abuse women or kill women or just other it's it's about how the women in this movie are not valued at all they are Mm -hmm. objects to be abused and to be traded for goods and services Mm -hmm. and juno temple plays the younger sister in the film and she does an incredible job in what had to be a very difficult role. Yeah. And it, it is about her becoming empowered and learning to fight back against all of these men around her. Mm-hmm. So you've got McConaughey, who's the really disturbing, chilling, dominant man. You've got Emil Hirsch's character, who's just kind of this conniving slimy person and then you've got thomas hayden church who is in many ways the comic relief but he's just kind of this dumb he's complicit in everything hick yeah and he he's complicit he's complicit um he doesn't agree with what's going on but he doesn't do anything to stop it yes and i just thought the movie was was fascinating to watch gina gershon is in the movie. Her character is is just so interesting. How she's trying to act as a woman and how she's using her sexuality to try and gain the upper hand and to try to manipulate the men around her, but how ultimately mm-hmm. they're just constantly bringing her down and they constantly yeah. just want to control her. Um, so yeah, really fascinating film. Violent, disturbing, but... I loved it. I think McConaughey deserves awards consideration that unfortunately he's not receiving. Yeah. uh, But, but yeah, I highly recommend killer Joe. If you can handle the violence and, and the gore. I mean, it did get an NC 17 originally. So, I mean, I have a problem with the story structure, I guess of like a sort of rape revenge because that's essentially what happens to Juno temples character because she is a minor. So this is mm. the rape of a child. So it's definitely not very easy to watch it, to say the least. Right. But but even that scene, that rape scene you're talking about, is not your mm-hmm. typical rape scene. And there's so much other stuff going on in this movie. You know, like like most of the time I watch rape revenge movies, and mm-hmm. I feel like they are just as misogynistic as the people in those movies like a lot of rape revenge movies are like oh just look at these gorgeous women being abused Mm -hmm. and it it, it sort of turns that into this thrilling thing and granted the way that it's depicted in killer joe it makes you feel disgusting yeah like it's it's certainly it's not shot like it like you have what you were saying it's very misogynistic you know it's showing like you know, it's playing up the sort of like the sexual pleasure of the um, attacker. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one, it's focused on Juno Temple's face, but it's a, it doesn't make it any less hard to watch. Right. And I think that a lot of rape revenge movies, 
try mm-hmm. to they thrive on getting the audience to sort of be complicit in it yes. and to get off on that mm-hmm. and killer joe acknowledges that and i think there are several moments in the movie where william friedkin is basically just shouting at the audience you are part of the problem as well he he's constantly just trying to subvert things in a way that makes the viewer realize oh I, this is uncomfortable why yeah. why do why do i feel the way i do about mm-hmm. this yeah I, I really loved killer joe what is your number three <laughs> on that note my number three is holy motors oh boy <laughs> which apparently you did not like as much not as much i won't say that i hated it so the the overall structure is that this actor is going from job to job to job um throughout a, the day so within like a 18 hour day or so and he's changing in his limo changing character putting on different makeup putting on different roles this guy was just incredible i think did an amazing job and each of the vignettes either have something to say about a sort of type of film they have a ca- a call back to leo carax as the director one of his previous works or it has to say something about the state of cinema the way the movie opens it's it starts out with the guy getting up, going to see like a sort of break in his wall or so, and finding a movie audience asleep, staring at a screen, going, and they're essentially just not paying attention. So, I mean, it's it's very French in that sense that it's all symbolic, but yes, I think it was very well done. It's very entertaining. There's, I think, maybe about nine or so different stops that he does throughout the course of his day, um, and each are radically different from action movie to personal drama to bizarre art film (laughs) right so what was your take (laughs) i liked holy motors i i feel like in many ways that the movie is just a collection of vignettes Uh uh-huh and it is these different scenes of this guy acting in different genres of film taking on different characters that Mm -hmm. we're sort of familiar with different archetypes playing these different roles but it's there there is no thread connecting them in terms of of a concrete plot really oh the overall actor going from job to job that's it it's just oh i'm a guy and i play these roles and i have all this makeup that i put on that's yeah all it is very very loosely held together so it's kind of like a life of the actor that he has these many roles that he eventually plays yes Yes, um, and that's that's what, why I think if if you're not okay with being kept in the dark about certain things and and having to figure things out on your own, then you probably won't like Holy Motors. It, it, <laughs> if you can't think while you watch a movie, you're probably not gonna like Holy Motors. <laughs> if you need things really explained to you as about what's happening, then why the hell are you watching a French film? <laughs> <laughs> that is also a good point, but but but. <laughs> There are words at the bottom of your screen. <laughs> the, the, the thing is, Holy Motors, it is, it's, I, I feel like it's held together thematically. Mm-hmm. That is what's holding it all together, is this idea of playing different roles, this idea of cinema and what it means to be an actor. There's all this stuff going on at points related to the death of film yes. and the actual celluloid film how how mm-hmm. that is in decline and how we're moving into this new digital age and how maybe that's not quite as rich as film, mm-hmm. which I think is debatable. 
And I, I came away from Holy Motors thinking that was a pretty good movie. That I'm glad I watched it. That was an interesting experience. But I honestly feel like a lot of the acclaim it's getting is because it's about movies. It's about film. And so, of course, film critics are going to like it and they're going to love it and, and like what it's about. So here's a really interesting take, I guess, on this is that all of film criticism is subjective. So you're playing something for the choir. Right. I mean, okay, so it's yeah. essentially the same argument that people were having about Hugo and The Artist last year. These are very filmy odes to cinema, but it, I don't think it makes it any less of a film just because it's talking about itself. I was just ta- I just mentioned to another friend of mine that, my God, per capita, the amount of jobs that are actually just writers are probably less than 1%. And mm-hmm. according to movies, that's about 30% of the job market. Because screenwriters are writers, so they talk about what they know. You know, they can relate to that. And so, yes, sometimes some of the movies that we relate to as film critics are movies about movies. Right. Or about the love of cinema, because that's where we can relate to. Right. So I liked the movie, but as I was watching it, I was thinking, there's nobody I can show this to that will like it. Do you need more film critic friends? Other than film critics. Other than (laughs) film critics. (laughs) You know, I feel like it's a movie that exists for a very narrow audience, and that's that's fine. It does what it does well. But then also, it is in many ways such an abstract film. I felt like it was hard for me to, to get emotionally involved in it. And apparently, Leo Carex has said that it's it's also all about his personal life, and it's about all of the stuff that he went through mm-hmm. regarding the death of his wife and stuff. And I I don't know, none of that came through to me in the movie. So there's that Kylie Minogue um, sequence where she does like this nice big song musical number with right. um, the main character, and then she it's time for her role. She goes onto the top of the roof and throws herself. That's true. And then he comes out running, and this is when like the actor breaks character, and he runs screaming into the limo, and he's right. crying, and he's really—it's touching to him. And that's when his work breaks, and that's when he gets really upset. Because uh, granted, all the other things that've been depicted, he had been shot earlier, he had been killed, he had kidnapped a person. Crazy, violent things happened in his day did not touch him. But this finally, another actor's death touched him that's a good point i hadn't thought of that yeah i feel like there's a lot of stuff you could talk about with this movie i mean i'm excited to watch it again i don't know if i'm ever gonna watch it again honestly i I was not (laughs) too french for you huh (laughs) it's not that it was too french it's just that i it was it was abstract to a fault it was abstract to the point where i was not uh invested in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, w- I was a little bit too alienated. I was sort of with it on an intellectual level, mm-hmm. just trying to figure out what is this that I'm watching. Okay. But on any other level, it, it didn't really engage me. So. All right. My number three is a film that I believe we both saw at South by Southwest, and that is Drew Goddard's The Cabin in the Woods. Yes. Actually, one of my top horror films. This movie is not your normal horror film. It's written by Joss Whedon as well as Drew Goddard, so you know it's going to be fun. What I liked about this movie is that it is, it's taking a look at horror film and using that to explore violence in general and mm-hmm. 
how fictional violence relates to real life violence in a sense. Yep. Because we as film critics like to say, oh no, a, a mass shooting happened. It's not because the killer watched a violent movie or played a violent video game. That's mm-hmm. silly. But the truth is, it's a lot more complicated than that. And I feel like Cabin in the Woods recognizes that the way violence is depicted on screen matters Mm -hmm. culturally. And these myths and these ideas that we have about about violence um, matter. And we need to confront those. And it, it, it basically just turns the whole horror genre upside down. And in a really fun, entertaining way and says, let's look at this genre and ask, why do we like horror films? Why do we, wa- why do we like watching people get raped and tortured? Why do we like watching murder? And I like how, I'm not going to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it, but mm-hmm. I, I like how the movie ties all of this back to just religion and ancient myths and ideas related to sacrifice and how that's been passed down archetypes. through it's all centuries. archetypes. Right, it's all it's all archetypes and the movie dares to suggest that if violence becomes something that we celebrate mm-hmm. maybe we don't deserve to be here. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, really really interesting film, a lot of fun, but it also has a lot of really good things it's, it's trying to touch on and a lot of things it's trying to say. I take it you liked it as well? I did. Unfortunately, did not make my top ten, but I really enjoyed it. Okay. I would say it's one of the best horror movies of the past year. Yeah, it's it's really great. It's, it's funny games for mainstream audiences. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Well, on that note, uh, my number two would be Django Unchained. Now, this is one that I'm kind of thinking like, oh, I would probably put Beasts of the Southern Wild here. But this was, you know, a month ago, and Django was literally the last film that I saw before turning in my ballot. They showed it, they screened it at 10 a.m., and all ballots were due at about, I think, 5 or 8 p.m. or so. So, a little intense, but it's uh, Quentin Tarantino's take on antebellum slavery, um, following the story of Django, how he teams up with uh, Dr. King Schultz, played by Christoph Waltz, and Django's played by Jamie Foxx, and how they become, well, Dr. King introduces Django into the business of bounty hunting. And so it's another revisionist uh, revenge fantasy from uh, Tarantino, and apparently he's working on another revisionist history revenge fantasy. <laughs> but um, he just can't get enough. We, we talked about it previous episode, but it's use a lot with race and it's basically the main <laughs> the main thing that people are dealing with it's like wow it's it's a pretty okay tarantino film but even just pretty okay for tarantino is pretty good for almost everybody else so i probably wouldn't have it as high as number two now but um it still would be in my top 10 for the year yeah i really enjoyed this film it didn't make my top 10 but yeah. it's a lot of fun i thought our discussion with craig Yes. <laughs> uh, last week was fantastic. There's a lot of stuff you can talk about regarding this movie. And mm-hmm. in many ways, I think that's the best thing about it <laughs> is mm-hmm. the, the incredible writing and discussion that it has mm-hmm. inspired. It's, it's one of those movies where 
the more I talk about it and the more I think about it and the more I read what other people think about it, the more I start to a- a- appreciate it a little bit yeah. more. So, yeah, really fun movie, really great. Definitely lots of stuff you could talk about afterwards. Yeah. So what's your, what would be your number two movie? My number two, we already talked about. My number two is Beasts oh, of the Southern right. Wild. Beasts of the Southern Wild. I'm going to go ahead and say my number one and let you have the last word on this. Oh, damn. You cut me in line. Because, unfortunately, my number one hasn't been released in the U.S. yet, as far as I'm aware. I saw it at the Toronto International Film Festival. Sure, so I haven't seen it. No, you haven't. It is Israel's submission to the Academy Awards this year. Unfortunately, it, it wasn't nominated for Best Foreign Language Film. But it, it's my pick for the Best Film of the Year. And it's an Israeli movie called Fill the Void. Fill the Void is about a Hasidic Jewish woman uh, in her 20s living in Israel. Very conservative, Orthodox, Hasidic community. And it's about what happens when her sister dies Mm -hmm. um, suddenly. And due to various things I, I won't spoil... Uh, for you. Basically, the premise is she has to decide whether or not she wants to marry her sister's former husband. Yep. And it's just a really interesting drama, really interesting look at religion and family and community and relationships and, and love and what is necessary for a healthy relationship is love even necessary for a marriage to work mm-hmm. um and it just asks some really really good questions and it's a really really engaging uh character study and it 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 blew me away that's my number 1 i can't wait for everybody else to see it <laughs> hey do you want me to shock you do you want me to shock you <laughs> yes i got to see that at the new york film festival you saw it? Oh man! Yeah. Did you like it or did you I did really you hate liked it? it? Are Are you gonna be like, no, your number one pick is stupid? I don't know if I would put it so high as number one. I mean, I guess it's kind of the same thing with Amor. Is that it just goes into a really like it's a really deep and personal movie, so it gives you a lot of pause for thought. But it's at the entire time, I guess, for me as a feminist watching this movie, I'm like, you don't have to do it. You don't have to do it. <laughs> so, um. But, you know, understanding, you know, the whole fact that, it, you know, it is a part of the community and keeping family close, because that's the other thing, is that the sister and her husband had a child. So it would be, you know, techni- like the way that they saw it, it would be better to have the child still raised by the same two families. Right. And it, it's interesting that as a feminist, you, you said that you, you didn't want this to happen. Mm-hmm. The director uh, in a Q&A after the screening I saw, yeah, actually her, her marriage was an arranged marriage. And yep. she's doing great. She says her marriage is super healthy, super solid, mm-hmm. and for, for a lot of different reasons. So it, 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 just, it, it really does kind of make you think about what, what is necessary, what, what is marriage exactly, and sure. what is necessary for that to work. And and the last scene of Fill the Void, uh, the last shot, actually, mm-hmm. uh, will, I think, inspire a lot of discussion um, about what it's trying to say. 
Mm -hmm. uh, about love and and relationships. I mean, I thought it was very interesting that it came from a female director. It's very much on the female perspective of the issue. It was just, especially since the Hasidic community is so male dominated, you know, uh, women are, they're shut off into a different room, essentially, when the men are together eating and discussing business. Again, it's not for me that it's about all about equality and, you know, that sort of thing. It's very, like, I understood it. But I was also very frustrated by it. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, well, that is my top ten. I should go ahead and say that I will be doing a blog post at some point Mm -hmm. um, on the Film Geek Radio website about my favorite films of the year. And while some of these films will be there, it's possible that others of them might not because I mentioned them last year, and it's possible that the order might get switched around a little. I don't know. There were so many good films this year. I, st- I stuck to my list. <laughs> I know you stuck to your list, but my, my list is always evolving. It's always possible I'll look at this top ten list tomorrow yeah, and yeah. be like, Beast of the Southern Wild, why are you at number two? I need to switch you up to, to this number and bring this one yeah, yeah. down. And, and, and yeah, I'll just go ahead and say check out my post on the website um, that'll go up pretty soon and it will be different in a few <laughs> respects from this list i guarantee you actually it. keep updating it throughout the year <laughs> i should yeah <laughs> <laughs> actually now i'm kind of in the mood for beast to be number one <laughs> <laughs> all right well what is your number one my number one is my girl k biggs controversial movie to end all controversial movies apparently of 2012 it's zero dark 30 i thought django and chain was the controversial movie to end all controversial movies well django and chain has not spawned a senate committee hearing so <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point <laughs> i think Kate big wins this one she hasn't gotten any like okay all the critics loved her we gave her like a lot of critics group gave her best director best director best director best director and now here comes awards like the official awards thing and she didn't win last night on the golden globes and then she didn't even get nominated for an academy for an oscar for best director. Well that's because award shows are bs. We all know that, right? Well, I guess so, but nobody pays attention to critics <laughs> anyway. Right. <laughs> we know that. Um, so I guess it was a little heartbreaking to see, like, she just looks so mad or so disappointed or just, like, over this. <laughs> the Globes last night, and I, I fell for her. Because, like, she was definitely my pick for Best Director, and obviously this is my number one movie of the year. Jessica Chastain is my number one actress over Wallace, actually, from Beast. Right. And uh, for, for people that don't know, this is this is the Osama Bin Laden movie. This is Catherine Bigelow's film about the search to find Bin Laden. And that 10-year period from September 11th to when we finally got him and yep. what that was like. Um, and we're actually going to be doing a regular full-length episode on Zero Dark Thirty next week at, at some point in the near future. So I don't want you to say too much about it okay. right now, Monica. Other than that, I'm in love with it. And Jessica Chastain and Catherine Bigelow are two of my fa- like favorite ladies right now. All I will say is... Definitely tune into that Zero Dark Thirty episode because I feel you don't feel the same way. I already hear it in you. We are yeah. gonna have we're gonna have quite the discussion about this movie, which is good because this movie 
spawns a lot of discussion. There's a lot to talk about. See, there we go. We just have to figure out who we're going to bring on for Zero Dark Thirty. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I, I think that'll wrap it up for our top ten. Because this episode is running so long, I think I'm going to split it up into two parts. No. And have our top ten, and then I'll have a separate part where we, where we get into some other categories. So real quickly, just to wrap up this part, why don't you go ahead and run down your top ten, and then I'll run down my top ten. Okay, 10, Perks of Being a Wallflower, 9, The Avengers, 8, 21 Jump Street, 7, The Master, 6, Oslo, August 31st, 5, Moonrise Kingdom, 4, Beast of Southern Wild, 3, Holy Motors, 2, Django Unchained, 1, Zero Dark Thirty. And with my top 10, sitting at number 10, King Kelly, number 9, Frankenweenie, Number eight, The Raid Redemption. Number seven, Great Expectations. Number six, Looper. Number five, The Perks of Being a Wallflower. Number four, Killer Joe. Number three, The Cabin in the Woods. Number two, Beasts of the Southern Wild. And number one, Fill the Void. And I think that'll wrap it up for part one of our episode, all about the best and worst movies of 2012. Don't forget to tune into the next part when we'll be discussing certain genres of film. We'll be talking about the worst movies we saw in 2012. Uh, There's so much more to discuss when looking back at, at 2012 in film. And don't forget to tune in to our next regularly formatted episode when we'll be talking Zero Dark Thirty. And we will be heavily debating that movie (laughs) we'd love to get your feedback on the show you can email us at cinemafix at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com you can also subscribe to the show through iTunes so if you like this episode please write us a review that would really help us get the word out about the show you can also donate to us through the website we really appreciate your help and don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio including The Thin Place let us know what you think thought of our top 10 let us know what's your top 10 are we totally off the mark here what are we forgetting we are always wrong yeah when it comes to best of the year lists everyone's always wrong (laughs) in in one way or another so let us know what your top 10 of the year is Uh, email us and and let us know monica where can people find you online People can find me on the Twitters at mcastymovies. That's M-C-A-S-T-I movies. They can also find my work at the Bofka website. That's B-O-F-C-A dot com, a site that Andrew apparently never reads. <laughs> I do read it. I remember seeing it back when you first released it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That was back in May. <laughs> no, no, not the website. I mean, I saw your your ballot. <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> I promise. All right. I'm Andrew Johnson. You can find some of my writing at filmgeekradio.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at writerandrew. If you do follow me, be sure to send me a message and let me know you're a listener, and I'll follow you back. Also, I'm on the executive committee of the uh, North Carolina Film Critics Association. By the time you hear this, we will have released our collective end-of-the-year awards as a critics group. You can find that at ncfilmcritics.org. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Monica Castillo. And have fun this week getting high on cinema.
This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!